And the reading is going to be taken from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting from verse 15. So 2 Kings chapter 5, starting from verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any God other than the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman the Aramean by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master came, me, sent me to say, two young men from the company of prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Nathan. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants when, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and left. Then he went in and stood before his master, Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you, with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes, olive groves, vine vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants and maid servants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous as white as snow. Let's welcome Dr. Kendall as he comes today. There's nothing more important in heaven and in earth than the honor and glory of God. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind listening at this moment in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Enable me to be very, very clear, very simple. May this be life-changing and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. 
My sermon today is about the honor of God. Uh, it shows the marks of a true servant of God. It shows how a new convert wants to show honor to God. It demonstrates also the reasonableness of Elisha, the prophet. And it shows that God is no respecter of persons. There are basically two things that I want you to see tonight. The first, I want to talk about God's reputation. Now, the honor of God refers partly to his reputation. God cares about his reputation. The question is, do we care about God's reputation? I wonder how many of you take the time to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Louise and I pray it together every single day of the week and every week of the year. It's just something we've done for a long time. And in the prayer, it starts out, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now when you pray that, do you realize what you're asking for? You're not only affirming God as holy, but it is a prayer that God will be hallowed all over the world. You're actually praying for God's reputation that the world will come to see and honor the true God. I recently received, in fact, it came uh, in the last 24 hours, a bulletin, I guess you could call it that. A friend of mine shared with me something that's been on the internet in the last several days. Perhaps you have seen it. A big heading, it says, London closes 500 churches, opens 423 new mosques. I wonder how that makes you feel. Do you realize that the God of the Bible at the moment is being ever increasingly eclipsed by something that we know is not of the true God? And so I want to talk to you about God's honor, His reputation. Now, it actually starts out with this. Elisha is offered a gift from Naaman. Naaman had been spectacularly healed. It was strange that Elisha would say, dip seven times in the river Jordan. But here was a man, a king, a very wealthy king, who had leprosy, and the seventh dip resulted in him being like a baby skin, completely healed. And Naaman was so grateful that he was now prepared to give to Elisha the money he had brought with him from Syria. Now, it's hard to calculate uh, what that money is worth today. We're talking about 600 pounds of silver, 800 pounds of gold. I suspect, translated into today's money, we're talking about 
hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars. Naaman was prepared to give that money if he got healed. He brought it with that intent. Well, he was spectacularly healed, amazing. And so the time came after Naaman had just confessed that he knows that there's no other God than the God of Israel, which was a, a big crossover. Imagine saying that today. Imagine a Muslim today saying there is no other God but the God of Israel or the God of Holy Scripture. But that is exactly what Naaman said. And now the time had come, he says to Elisha, I want to give you something. And immediately, Elisha says no. Not only does he say no, he even swears an oath. Not that he needed to do it, but he wanted to emphasize. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Even though Naaman urged him, Elisha refused. Elisha actually needed the money. He lived by people contributing to him. And it was not only for his personal needs. He had Gehazi, his servant. And we know from the reading, if you notice, Gehazi has servants. So we're talking about a, a, a payroll but in addition to that, there were 100 prophets that Elisha was responsible for. And the money that Naaman had would have paid the bills probably for years. Probably for years. And imagine turning down money like that. Now, there are not many like that today. I don't want to be unfair, but it crossed my mind just an hour ago to quote a line from the Didache. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Didache. Some call it the Didache. It was a document written in the second century. They think maybe 150 AD. It's post-biblical, so it's not infallible. And I'm not suggesting that this is infallible, uh, but it's just interesting. There was a section in the Didache, how to know a true prophet from a false prophet. And there's this one line that stands out, quote, if he asks money, he is a false prophet. Think about it. So here is money offered to him. Naaman doesn't come in that chariot with all that money to flaunt his wealth. He came expecting to give it and go back empty. But Elisha says, I will not accept a thing. Now the question is, why do you suppose Elisha refused the gift from Naaman? I can tell you. He was more concerned about the honor of God than he was his own personal needs. He knows that when Naaman goes back to Syria, they're all going to know that he's been healed. They're going to know it was from the God of Israel. Elisha wants them to know in Syria 
that it didn't cost a thing. That what God does, He does by grace. This is the way it is with the gospel to this day. The gospel is free. You may be a millionaire and say, I would like to purchase a home in heaven. I'd like to purchase my way to eternal life. God doesn't want your money. In fact, your money could even hurt you. How could it hurt you? Well, it would hurt if you think it helps. People who think because they have a lot of money that they're more important than others in the kingdom of God. Not so. In any case, here was a man of God, Elisha, who needed the money but turned it down because he cared more about God's reputation in Syria. Now, why Syria? He's, he's not going to see Naaman again. He's never going to go to Syria. He's not hoping to have invitations in Syria that it will help him to get known. No, it's one thing. The honor of God. He wanted the people of Syria to know. These people who worship Rimon, that was their God. He wanted them to know that the God of Israel is different. But you know, I have to say that I think some of us care more about our own reputation than we do God's reputation and honor. And I've been haunted by this uh, about, I think, 15 years ago. I get uh, an email from a very famous American preacher. If I were to mention his name, I think every one of you would know who it is. Famous for his teaching on prosperity. And famous, rightly or wrongly, uh, for a reputation of being fraudulent with money. And uh, he did not have a good reputation at all. And so he writes me and says, would I come to London to speak at Earl's Court to 5,000 people, he will pay my way over, and he will give me a nice honorarium. Well, when I got the letter, I said to Louise, I'm not going to be seen on the platform with that man. I'm not going to let my reputation suffer because of this. And she said, why don't you call Lyndon? My friend, Lyndon Bowery. Most of you know Lyndon. He's, he's the executive chairman of CARE. Very close friend, and, and uh, I lean on him all the time. Uh, I would say he actually has the gift of wisdom. So I called Lyndon and told him who it was. And I said, Lyndon, I, I know you're going to agree, but I just thought I'd tell you. Louis said to call you. Uh, I am not going to be on the platform with that man. He said, R.T., Am I to believe that you would deprive 5,000 people in London who need your message of total forgiveness, which will change their lives, all because you're worried about your reputation? I said, I'll go. I did. Sat on the platform, and all my fears were realized letters from all over the world, how dare you be on the platform with that man. And so I was worried about my reputation. 
And you know, see, this thing follows everybody in some degree. Uh, you might like to know that uh, three weeks ago, I was invited to speak in Blackpool to 100 ministers who are supporting Franklin Graham. Billy Graham's son, Franklin, is coming to Britain uh, in September of this year. And uh, uh, there are a lot of people who don't want him to come. In fact, I was told that there might even be an act of parliament to, to stop him. I don't know that it'll go that far, but there is such hatred for him. And 100 ministers are going to support him. They want me to go and address them. Well, it turns out that the very church where we were going to have that meeting, the vicar cancels the meeting because... He was afraid of what it would do for his reputation because you're going to have the lesbian and gay movement with their plaques. He's accused of being uh, Islamophobic. He's accused of being against uh, Muslims. And the truth is, Franklin Graham has done more for Muslims than anybody I know. But that was the, what they were saying. And these pastors were now on the fence, some of them. They weren't sure they were going to Stick it out and, and back Franklin. So I go up there to speak to them. And I said, with all my heart, throw your reputations to the wind for the honor of God because that man will come and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need that more than anything in the world. Let nobody back off. Well, whether I did any good, I don't know. But here's the thing. We're living in a time when people are looking over their shoulders all the time. What will this do for me? What will happen? You know, we're going to stand before God one day and give an account. And I try to make decisions. I don't say I'm good at it, but I try to make decisions all the time. What would I do if I knew I would stand before God one week from now? What would I think then? All right, God's reputation. We're dealing with a most important subject, the honor of God. And when the gospel is preached, God is honored. And when the gospel is preached in its purity, it brings great honor and glory to God. And uh, uh, I would urge you to pray for Franklin Graham when he comes to London, or rather it's to Blackpool uh, next, next September. Well now, Naaman, now knowing that uh, Elisha's not going to take his money, he said, well, I will ask for one thing. He had two requests. The first was, he put it this way, he said, let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. This shows he was a changed man. He wanted to take Israeli soil to Syria so he could pray on Israeli soil to worship the God of Israel because he was done with Rimon. Uh, 
But then he had another request. And this is unusual. He was very close to the king. The king was elderly and had a handicap. And so he said, would you allow me to accompany the king of Syria when this handicapped king worshipped in the temple of Rimon? Naaman himself, he will have no more sacrifices to, to Raymond, the god of Syria. He's truly a changed man. However, he was still under the king of Syria, and Naaman, he anticipates there's going to be a problem down the road. And so he says, when the aged and disabled king of Syria worships in the temple, uh, I've got to be in attendance. Uh, will it be okay if I help the king when he bows? Elisha says, go in peace. Set him free. Elisha doesn't say, how dare you be a part in the remotest way of a heathen God like that. You might have expected that Elisha would say that. Uh, but that's not what Elisha says. And uh, this very statement has vast implications for us today. I don't want to go into all the implications and how it could be applied. But take, for example, you're invited to a wedding in a church you don't attend, and they don't believe what you do. Uh, if you go to that wedding, are you endorsing the theology or the drift of that denomination? No. You're not doing that at all. You're just showing friendship and being nice, and it could even be a good testimony for you. And I could go into this in other ways, but the point is that Elisha, godly man, not governed, not motivated by money, says to Naaman, go in peace. I actually used that verse about three years ago when uh, a woman who was converted at Westminster Chapel, uh, in our 25 years at Westminster Chapel, the most spectacular conversion of those 25 years, and if I'm honest, the most spectacular conversion in my, my whole life. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, she was amazingly saved, turned around. I baptized her. She became a member of Westminster Chapel. Uh, her father was a former president of Syria. And she lost everything in her inheritance as a result. The next thing I want to point out is that when God does something in an amazing way, even in a less spectacular way, but it's God, whether someone is being saved or a hundred people or people healed, do you know who doesn't like it? The devil. You can be sure that when there is a mighty move of the Holy Spirit, the devil, one way or another, will get in. How does he do it? Well, Jonathan Edwards used to say, when the church is revived, so is the devil. And so when God is at work, Satan is threatened by that. And uh, you see this uh, 
throughout the New Testament. Take, for example, uh, when Jesus was born and the Magi come to looking for, for uh, the new king. And uh, uh, suddenly they have to ask, well, where is the Messiah going to be born? And the theologian said, well, it will be in Bethlehem. And so uh, Herod uh, called the Magi because uh, he was nervous about these kings from the east and says, well, you go find him and then tell me so I can worship him too, which was a lie. Turns out that they went on their way and the Holy Spirit told them, don't go back to Herod. And when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to the king to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And this is the fulfillment of the prophet of Jeremiah. Uh, God knew in advance this would happen. Uh, nothing ever takes God by surprise. But the point is, there's no greater event then when the Word made flesh comes as a baby and God is powerfully at work. It doesn't get better than that. But Satan knew who this was. And he was using Herod to kill the baby Jesus. Well, it didn't work. And remember this. The devil always overreaches himself. So if you're under satanic attack... I can tell you now, all you need to do is stand. Are you aware of that passage in Ephesians chapter 6? It is the classic passage on satanic warfare, where Paul says, uh, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I want to say something that it may be old hat to you or it may be new to you. Satanic warfare, spiritual warfare, must always be defensive. Here's what I mean. Don't attack the devil. Don't go around trying to pick a fight with the devil. I've heard people do this. Say, we're going to give the devil trouble tonight. We're going to show him up. And I could tell you story after story how... When they do that, they're out of their depth. If you think you're going to fight the devil by being aggressive and you start the fight, you're out of your depth. You don't have God's promise. But if he attacks you, you know what you're supposed to do? Stand. Stand. In fact, in this passage, I'm going to read it. The word stand is found for times. So he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to Stand your ground. After you've done everything to stand. And here's the fourth time it's mentioned. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. See, when the devil attacks you, 
All you have to do is stand. Don't walk. Don't run. Don't fall. Don't trip. Don't go backwards. Just stand. And when the storm passes by, the fact that you just stood, you made great progress. This is the way to do it. When the devil attacks, you stand. And so the devil is always looking for a way to get in. How is he going to get in in this occasion? Well, it turns out that Elisha had a servant that turned out to be astonishingly disloyal. I've been thinking about this matter of loyalty. Do you realize there's no way to know in advance whether a person will be loyal? Loyal is such a wonderful virtue. Listen to this word, Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. Never let loyalty and loving kindness leave you. Loyalty. That means you stand by the person, the principal, because he needs to know, she needs to know, they can trust you. But I have concluded that there's no way to know in advance. You can, I've had uh, people work with me over the years in ministry. Uh, you interview them. You ask them all kinds of questions. And you get referees. You get uh, reports. And, and, uh, and in some cases, you could even give them uh, psychological tests and see Will this person be loyal? I have to tell you, there's no way to know. You take Gehazi. He had worked with Elisha for years. Years. Elisha's the uh, fully trusted Gehazi. Gehazi's the last person Elisha thought would betray him. But what happened is that jealousy including greed and eventually lying, got into Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, because Gehazi began to think of all that money. He thought of the hundreds of thousands of pounds or worth in dollars that that was worth. And he says to himself, Elisha will never know if I do this. So after Naaman was about to cross the Syrian border several miles away, here comes Gehazi, and he stops, he stops Naaman. And Naaman says, everything okay? And uh, yeah, everything's fine. Uh, he, he just said, uh, uh, my master Elisha has changed his mind. He says, uh, uh, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, we wonder if you would give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Well, of course, says Naaman. By all means, take two talents. And, and, he, and he urged Gehazi to accept them and tied them up, the two talents of silver, two bags and two sets of clothing. You see, Gehazi 
was going to use that money for himself. He was so sure that no one would find out. It's a dangerous thing when you're dealing with a prophet like Elisha. And so this happens. This happens when uh, the devil gets in and he uses somebody who you thought was going to be loyal. And then when the test comes, you find out they're not loyal at all. This is a word, and I say this parenthetically. I don't have this in my notes at all. I think I'm supposed to say this. That you need to support Colin Dye, your pastor. He needs your loyalty, the staff. You need to support this man. I know what it is to have someone not be loyal, and it can be devastating. Well, Elisha thought he had a loyal man, but it's not the case. And so he runs after Naaman, and before he gets too far, he gets this money, gets these gifts. But I'll tell you why I think this is also important. Am I right that you are anticipating here at Kensington Temple times of refreshing? We believe that something huge could be right ahead, right here in London, right here at KT. And if so, caution, the devil will not like it. And it's a time to be careful. Watch jealousy. You see, jealousy is something that we can see in others, but people won't admit it to themselves. Someone says to you, I think you're a bit jealous. I am not. That's the last thing they want to admit to. And greed, it comes in. And when greed comes in, we don't see it as greed. We see it as, well, God knows my needs and so forth. Well, jealousy and greed set in. Uh, it happens in Christian work. And Gehazi angrily, angrily vows, he swore an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, that he's going to get something from this wealthy Syrian general. Jealous that Naaman had all that money. He saw a way of getting it and thought that Elisha would never find out. And a number of years ago, I made a study of one little word. Maybe it was a couple words that had to do with being found out when you thought no one would know. That was the study. There are over 20 references where people think, ah, no one will know if I do this. And you think God will overlook it. I have to tell you, there's a verse that you need to take on board. Maybe you need to put it as a plaque in your bedroom. Be sure your sin will find you out. And if you are truly a Christian, you can be doubly sure. Because once you are covered by the blood of Jesus, you are now God's property. And you will eventually get caught. And I would say this, I have no way of knowing whether anybody needs this, but if there is that in your life that you know was dishonoring to God, and so far, no one knows, so far, 
you have not been found out, I would say to you, on bended knee, as it were, repent now. Repent now. And thank God he's been merciful. Maybe this word, maybe this word has come just in the nick of time. Well, now, we're talking about God's reputation. But before I close, there's another word I need to bring in. And that is judgment. Gehazi did not get away with it. Uh, and so, Elisha just says to him, uh, what made you think you could get away with this? He says to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from the chariot to meet you? Uh, you know, Elisha saw the whole thing in an open vision. In this time, is this the time to take money or accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men's servants and maid servants? And then he says, Naaman's leprosy. He got healed from it. His leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and he was leprous white as snow. Judgment. There's one other thing you need to see about Elisha. And in a way, this is just me. Uh, when I got this little insight, it, this was the biggest thing of all in the story. You would have thought that Elisha would say to Gehazi, go back to Naaman and tell him, I didn't tell you to do that. But he didn't. Or you would have thought Elisha would do something to keep Naaman from thinking. You see, here Naaman up to now thought it was all for, for nothing. It was free. He was healed. The prophet's money. He didn't, he didn't want the money. He didn't want Naaman's money. And you would have thought that Naaman uh, should be told. But now Naaman goes into Syria. He can no longer say that it was free. And now the opinion that Naaman has of Elisha will be Maybe tarnished is too strong a word, because what was asked was reasonable, but it wasn't quite the same, because he ended up taking money after all. It looked like it came from Elisha. Well, here's my point. What does Elisha do about it? What does he do? He says, I don't want Naaman to have this thought about me. Elisha does nothing. He just leaves it. He lets it stand. And that to me is a very severe test. Whether when a word is out about you and you say, well, I need to get this cleared up. Uh, I've got to protect my reputation. I don't want them to have these thoughts. And you do everything you can to protect your reputation. Say, well, I didn't say that. I didn't say this. <laughs> Let me tell you something. God does best this enterprise called vindication. Once you do anything to try to vindicate yourself, 
make yourself look better. Uh, that's not going to please God very much. You remember that Joseph was accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. The truth is, he was clean. He resisted her. And she then told her husband that this Hebrew tried to rape her. And the next thing you know, the next thing you know, Joseph is in prison. He's in a dungeon. But miraculously, he's later delivered because Pharaoh has a dream and Joseph's gift is discovered. And in a short period of time, Joseph is made prime minister of Egypt. Have you ever thought of this? Joseph's name was never cleared. Never that we know of. People thought he was this Hebrew who tried to rape uh, uh, the, the wife of, of Potiphar. Joseph didn't do anything about it. And I say this in case there's someone here. You know what it is to have something said about you. It's not true. It's not true at all. But you're dying to clear your name. It's understandable. It's understandable. But look what these men that God used did about it. Everything will come out at the judgment seat of Christ, and it's worth waiting for. Don't try to clear your name now. Uh, by the way, do you know the most maligned person in the history of the world? You know who it is? It's the person of God the Father. The most maligned person of all. He gets all the accusations. Why is there trouble in the world? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? And that's the rationale of people for not believing in God. Do you think God is trying to protect his reputation? You see, he can wait. There's a verse that talks about the patience of God. He can wait. And one day he will clear his name. And if you are wanting your name to be cleared, just wait. Don't, don't rob God of what he does best. Let me say that what happened to Gehazi is what I call terminal chastening. Now, there are three levels of chastening. Internal, external, terminal. Chastening, sometimes called disciplining. It comes from a Greek word that means enforced learning. When God will teach you a lesson. And Hebrews 12 says, The Lord loves whom he chastens or disciplines and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. But there are three levels. Internal. What's that? Well, that's what's happening right now. That's when God speaks to you through his word. That's when his word operates on your heart. And by the way, that's the best way to have your problem solved. When God speaks to you and his word is so clear, you say, I don't need to do anything more. It's settled now. I've heard from God. That's the way to have your problem solved. But then there's plan B. If you don't listen to God's word because he loves you, he will discipline you. 
Plan B is external chastening. It could be financial reverse. It could be he puts you flat on your back. It could be he will let you lose your reputation. Whatever it takes to get your attention. But terminal chastening. And sometimes God just cuts right into that and does something that is most horrible of all. But it is only to a believer. You see, Gehazi is a type of the believer. He's not a type of the non-Christian. He's a believer. But sometimes it happens to believers in the early church when there was the optimum level of power, people being healed, thousands being saved, and the presence of God was so real that the disciples became detached from their earthly things and, and money. And they started selling their property and taking the money and depositing the money at the apostles' feet. And, and that was what was happening. And there was a young couple there. I don't know that they were young, but there was a couple. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they were believers. But greed got in. And they wanted to be very in. So they sold property and brought some of the money. Now, what Gehazi did, he would have got away with if he weren't dealing with a man of God like Elisha. What Ananias and Sapphira did, they would have got away with had there not been this optimum level of power. But when the presence of God is powerful like that, it's a very serious thing to lie or abuse the Lord's Supper. You take in Corinth. Paul says many of you are sickly. Some are weak. Some of you are asleep. That means they were dead. That's ter terminal chastening when they died. Or they have a condition that will never change. God was dealing with those who abused the Lord's Supper. I suppose what happened in Corinth uh, has happened a million times since people misuse the Lord's Supper. They don't take it seriously as they ought, and they get away with it. But I'm telling you, we're wanting times of refreshing. We're wanting a high level of the presence of God. Were that to come, caution. Watch what you do. Watch what you say. Because when the presence of God is powerful like that, it's a time for soul searching and not try to play games or think you will get away with it. I would urge you tonight in our prayer ministry time to ask the question, what if the power of God came in great measure here? What it would do to you what you would have to repent of, how it might change your life. And I would urge you before God to search your life, your heart, to know, is there anything in you that's not right with Him? We've been saying for a number of weeks, it's come from others, not just me, the fear of God is coming back to the church. And when this happens, 
going to change lives like you never saw. But be sure the devil will get in. And I would urge you to remember, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Internal chastening. That is what is going on right now when God speaks. Best way to have your problem solved. We're talking about the honor of God. His reputation, His power, His glory.